This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome back for another fortnight as we delve into the life of a woman from one of those previously mentioned <laughs> categories. From one of those How things. are you? <laughs> oh, you know, I've been better, I've been worse. The world is a funny old place. Oh, isn't it, it is. Well, we're just coming off of the back of some pretty bad news as we're recording here. As you say, the world is in a bad place and it's just gone to a darker place because we lost the amazing, powerful, notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) Notorious RBG. Yes. I like that. But, you know, she was an incredible woman whose influence in the US and I guess by extension, you know, in in a lot of other Mm, Western countries mm. like us here in Australia really genuinely cannot be understated. She is a woman who was first female graduate of Harvard Law School and she graduated top of her class and she completed that while caring for her child and her sick husband who had cancer. Mm. She still graduated top of her class and she brought in laws and policies that made abortion accessible for women, that meant that women were no longer seen as dependents and could actually get things like credit cards and bank loans in their own name which yeah, I know. is shock horror ridiculous yeah. <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that they, they couldn't yeah yeah but it's interesting because we did think a little bit about this and I mean obviously she's clearly the kind of woman that deserves her own deviant woman episode deviant woman episode her own deviant women episode <laughs> she's a deviant woman yeah no. she is a deviant woman but I don't think to be honest that now's quite the time for it because it feels like One of the main reasons is because I don't really feel like there's anything I could say on the podcast right now that you wouldn't be able to just sort of read about her on any kind of news website Mm. or in any newspaper at the moment. And so it kind of seems like it would be a little bit of repeating what's already out there about her right now. But I think even more importantly is that I think what's going to be really important to think about with her entire legacy is to wait and see what happens next. Oh, my God, yes. Very much so in Mm. American politics Mm. before we can kind of really fully reflect on her legacy and on the ramifications of her passing right now at this moment in history. I mean, the implications are huge and potentially terrifying. Yep, yeah. And it's not great timing let's no, be honest not at all and that's such it should be such a secondary concern like we should not mm. be at the death mm. of this remarkable woman who achieved such an incredible amount and had such powerful influences on the daily lives of women across the US and as i said the implications of those the influence mm. that that had in other social like globally kind of, mm. globally and yet you know, the second thought that occurred to me was like, fuck. <laughs> yes. Shit. <laughs> what? What oh, now? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Oh, no. And I think that that, I mean, those were some of the last words that she said, apparently, (laughs) is, you know, being concerned about that issue of what happens happens when she's gone. Yeah. 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 I guess all we can really say for now is we're thinking about you guys over in the US and we hope that things don't go as badly as they can. But have hope that common sense and humanity (laughs) prevails and also of course just acknowledging the woman she was and the life that she lived but she she's certainly and i mean we've already had people contact us and say you should do an episode (laughs) and we're like well we have we (laughs) We will we will we should we will we're not ignoring this (laughs) no but i definitely think that it's probably worth pausing and waiting and seeing what is going to happen next mm. in that legacy of her life mm. um, and revisiting it a bit further down the track. But, yeah, we certainly did want to acknowledge that in today's episode because it has been a huge shockwave this week. And so we'll persevere, though, today with a completely mm. different woman <laughs> and, and a completely different story and, I mean, definitely some ramifications here that are, are similar. Women's rights definitely play into this and a little bit of the suffrage movement comes into play. So definitely we've, as always, related themes (laughs) but a very different world because I did drop a few hints in our last episode about returning to the world of the fairy tale. You sure did. You sure did. I did. You did. You said that you weren't 100% sure, but you think this is where you're going. So this is where you went then. Yes, indeed. That is where we shall return to. Excellent. We do love a fairy tale-esque world. And you know what? We need to escape to one. But is this a good one that we want to escape to? Well, so it's an interesting one because we're not actually going to necessarily be talking about a fairy tale figure, but rather a real woman who wrote Fairy tales. It's a sideways. It's doing a little bit of both. It is doing a bit of both. A little it's bit a of parallel. Little bit oh of literature. Little bit of reality. What? Yeah, what? that means that we're hitting three of our boxes. We are. We are ticking three boxes it's today. History, myth, and literature in it one is. episode. Bam. If only she was more contemporaneous, but she's not. <laughs> because we're gonna be going back to the Victorian times. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yeah, 1900s. I mean, Sorry about that. You know, they liked it. It's, it's cool. Yes. So we've <laughs> talked a bit about fairy tales, obviously, in the past, and we've talked a lot about the way that, you know, different feminine roles are mm. represented and portrayed mm. in fairy tales. And, you know, it's really interesting because often, usually, the household names, of course, that we attach to fairy tales are men's names, you yeah, know? Yeah, Absolutely. Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, yep, the Grimm brothers. brothers. Exactly. And, of course, it's such an interesting thing to think of because even though they have obviously contributed to the tradition of fairy tales, so have women, of course, mm. incredibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, And, you know, mm-hmm. we can't ignore um, Hans Christian Andersen or the Grimm brothers or, or, or Charles Perrault, any of those male figures. But it's amazing to think how much we've forgotten about the female contributors yeah. to this genre. We tend to only think about the female contributors in a contemporary sense, those who are revisiting fairy mm. tales and yeah. subverting fairy tales like Angela Carter, for example. Yeah, exactly. But, of course, you know, over the centuries there's been lots of different vogues for fairy tales and folklore. And I, I mentioned this a little bit in our episode on Baba Yaga about sort of that particular revival 
people in Russian folklore that sort of saw her come back to the fore. Mm. And of course, you know, we're not going to the 17th century today, but in the 17th century in France, for example, there was an explosion in fairy tale tellings. And it was headed, like, yes, Charles Perrault was involved, yes, of course, but it was really <laughs> headed by women and women yeah. such as Madame Delnoy. I don't know if I'm saying that right because mm-hmm. I'm shit at French. We but hope. there's also Mademoiselle de la Force, good name, Marie-Jeanne <laughs> de Viandon. I'm so sorry. I'm so shit at but I'm just going <laughs> to keep punching with it. Jeanne-Marie la Prince de Beaumont and Gabrielle uh-huh. Suzanne de Viannou. And where are all these names? I don't think it's just because many English speakers find French names difficult to pronounce. I don't think that that's the reason why we've forgotten them. (laughs) No, it's interesting. I guess it's just because these women, you know, these tales were told in salons, in conversational style, and they weren't necessarily written down and published. I mean, some of these women definitely did publish their stories. Yeah, but so neither were a lot of the stories that the others all collected. Yeah, I I think it's just because like so many genres when – the men knew they could make money out of it. They took over. <laughs> but True. I think as well, you know, these sorts of stories that were told in these French salons were much more for adult audiences than yeah. for children to begin with. Yeah. But they are where some of the first versions of stories like Beauty and the Beast or Rapunzel or Cinderella or Goldilocks or a whole bunch mm. of those other stories that we know come from. And I, I do say first versions because, of course, fairy tales are oral stories and they travel and they change. Yes. So, you know, it's yeah. very, very difficult to pin down any kind of original source or first version. Is Cunning Cinders, is, I don't know, you probably don't know this, but is that a Cinderella origin story? I believe it is and it is also by one of those women that I've just mentioned. But right. I, can't, I can't remember yep. which one. It might actually be Mademoiselle de la Force who's mm. Cunning Cinders. But, yeah, they are all sort of tangled up with the origins mm-hmm. of these particular stories. And something like Cinderella, you know, the roots of the Cinderella story even go way back down the Silk Road, like all the way back yeah. to the east. You know, they're not just well, this Western is where, stories. You know, we see those stories like Jaleda, for example. Yes, exactly. There's the crossover with the leather skin instead yep. of, you know, donkey, donkey skin. skin. Yes, yeah, donkey, donkey skin. skin. That's the Charles Perrault version. Yeah. Exactly. So, that, I mean, they're all, they're very shifting sorts of things. Mm. But Mary de Morgan is an interesting one because she is one of those ones where like, obviously the influences that she's taken for the story she tells comes from that very long tradition, but they are really original stories in the fact that they are her versions of a story she has invented from scratch, even though it has those tropes or those yeah. kinds of things. So, but, she's actually making them Yeah, exactly. But she's one of those ones where her stories are her stories. Yeah. And I think it is interesting to sort of think about that female influence on fairy tales, even though we tend to default to the male voices, because of course, you know, in a very kind of heteronormative sort of traditional sense, it would have been the women's role to tell the children the stories, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's their job. To and tell so children many the stories. of these stories involve lessons for girls. Correct. Know? Exactly. I, think I might just be my selective memory, but f- I can think of far more fairy tales that have lessons for girls in them yes. than lessons for boys. I don't Definitely. even know if I can think of any fairy tales that 
contain lessons for boys. Yeah, there are ones there. I mean, like, don't swap a cow for some beans. Be- I was going to say, don't climb random stalks. <laughs> oh, hello. That's a very uh, interesting. <laughs> we can definitely put That's a, a heteronormative spin- <laughs> lesson. It is, there. yeah. Uh, I like the spin we can put on that. But anyway, look, all of that aside, we're not going to 17th century <laughs> France today. Even though that's fun and we will eventually. Yes, we definitely will eventually. We're going to Victorian England. And as I said, we're going to be talking about Mary de Morgan. Now, she was part of one of my favourite worlds, one of my favourite dream worlds, Lauren. Um, I don't know if you remember this or if our listeners out there remember this, but not only is she tied up with the world of fairy tale, which is, of course, one of my favourite worlds, but she's also wound up with the latter part of the pre-Raphaelites. Yes, (laughs) correct. That is correct. Her older brother, William de Morgan, he was a tyler and a decorative designer and a potter who Mm -hmm. worked alongside William Morris and worked with Morris & Co. And, of course, yeah, I know. Yes, good. Very good. I love a... William Morris wallpaper. Yes, exactly. So very famous textile designer. And I think most people are familiar with his, oh, well, a lot of people are familiar with his wallpaper and textile designs. And if you don't know the name, if you Google William Morris wallpaper, you will Mm. recognise. Exactly. Yeah. The wallpaper. Because it's still used, like constantly used today, these designs. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention also he was the husband of Jane Morris who herself was a very famous uh, model and muse for the Pre-Raphaelites and an artist in her own right as an embroiderer. And embroidery is an interesting one that will play in a little bit of today's story as well because not only was Mary de Morgan sort of part and parcel of or moved in the circles of the Pre-Raphaelite group but also the arts and craft movement as Mm. well. So that's something that we'll see a little bit play into her story today. I also love the name of the art and craft movement because it sounds so benign doesn't it it just sounds like it's a bunch of mums at a workshop yeah knitting like a knitting circle yeah Yeah. like one of those evenings they hold at the local craft store when they close the doors and you get there for like groups where you drink wine and someone leads you in a workshop of paper mache or something yeah that's what I think of when I think of the arts and craft movement but then those mums influence the whole world of art and that would be amazing (laughs) exactly it's not what it is, though. <laughs> no, but you'll you'll tell us about it later. And we will, and I think we've touched on the arts and craft movement a few times before. I touched as well. a little bit, yeah, yeah. But even more exciting than just William de Morgan being her older brother is the fact that William de Morgan went on to marry Evelyn Pickering, who then became Evelyn de Morgan, who is one of the greatest of the later Pre-Raphaelite painters. Uh-huh. She, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, it's this is another really funny thing about gender. When I was a kid. I I had no idea that her paintings were her paintings. I literally thought Evelyn de Morgan was a man. Like I just Yeah, well, ass- Evelyn assumed. was a male name up until yeah. quite recently. Exactly. Though would you as a child have known that? <laughs> I guess I assumed it because I yeah. assumed that all pre-Raphaelite artists were men yep. until I was old enough to figure out that that wasn't the case. But and of the, course the, it was... The women were models and... Yeah, that's exactly it. There was a line drawn. But Evelyn de Morgan is one of the greatest of the later pre-Raphaelite artists. Her work is gorgeous. Anyway, so that was Mary de Morgan's sister-in-law. So Mm. that's exciting. Look, she was in very (laughs) fucking good artistic company basically is what we're saying. We're setting the scene of everybody just needs to enter Alicia's head and just absorb that pre-Raphaelite fantasy world where you wish you were right now. Yeah, such a nice world. Well, you know, except for the misogyny. But other than that. (laughs) And the 
syphilis. But other than that, <laughs> great. Anyway, but we'll rewind yep, yep, yep. to the start of De Morgan's life as cool. we should. I also just great name, by the way. De Morgan. It is a good name. Mm. Yeah, mm. it is. So she was obviously she was born into the De Morgan family. <laughs> she was well, she might have married into it actually. That's not obvious. Well, that's yeah, that's that's, that's yeah. true. Yeah. But she wasn't. She was born in 1850 into the fairly well-to-do De Morgan mm, family. Perhaps not surprising. Yes. They already had six other children by then, including William, who was 11 years older than Mary. So her father was a leading mathematician of mm. the time. Her mother was a social reformer and Lauren, you will be very happy to know she was also a spiritualist. Was she? Of course she was. Of yes, course she was. She was. And good look, for her. This is a really interesting part. This sort of early part of De Morgan's life is very interesting because of her mother and her mother's influences. Those spiritualist mothers are very influential. <laughs> they are so influential. We talked a bit about mothers last episode, but I think, yeah, the importance of mothers come back again this time around. And, look, there's actually no sort of formal record of Mary herself having a formal education, although we do know at least one of her sisters did go to mm. Bedford College, which was one of the first ladies' colleges in England, and it was actually her mother, well, the De Morgan mother, Sophia, who helped to establish Bedford College oh, as nice. well. Because she was, as I said, a social reformer. She believed wholeheartedly in women's education. Mm-hmm. She was involved in the suffrage movement. So even mm. if we have no record of Mary herself receiving a formal education, we can assume obviously she did. Yeah, it would be extremely surprising if a social reformer, you know, suffragette, spiritualist mother did not educate her daughter. Yeah. That would be shocking. And also because Sophia herself, as I said, she's a really interesting character and she had been a tutor, so we can assume she probably tutored her daughter. She had been a tutor for Ada Lovelace of all people. <gasps> oh, who? Oh, shit. Yeah. Who, of, of course, course ma- the mother of modern computing. Daughter yeah. Of Lord Byron. Not that that's that important, but you know, <laughs> but it's much it, to do with her. But <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting fact because yes, she yeah. was a she was a mathematician yeah. essentially, and, yes. a, and yes. a writer in her own right. And yes, as you mentioned, daughter of Lord Byron, which is very interesting father to have. <laughs> but also, perhaps less well known, was the fact that Lady Byron was also a mathematician. Yes. So, Actually, yes, that's not known really at all yes so that obviously runs in the family Sophia de Morgan tutored Ada Lovelace that is fantastic how's that for another connection fantastic so many family connections but as well as being obviously a very very intelligent woman she was also an anti-slavery lobbyist and she was also an anti-vivisectionist so she was a woman very much after her own hearts in those regards spiritualists were some of the most you know radical social reformers of their time well, that's right, exactly. And she wrote <laughs> quite a lot on really? all of these subjects. By the way, anti-vivisectionist, if you don't know what that is, oh, is yes. it's kind of like anti-animal cruelty, isn't it? Yes, it's because the use of animals in scientific, scientific experiments. Yeah, yeah, quote, unquote. And it's, it's essentially not just the use of animals in scientific experimentation, but basically performing experiments on live animals. Yes. It's, yeah, let's not go down that dark, dark path. (laughs) But 
this interestingly though does play into some of the stories that De Morgan writes later as well. So we'll see how this mm-hmm. upbringing really, really shapes her so much. I'm already very unsurprised that she turned into <laughs> the type of person that she did. <laughs> exactly. So I'm excited to see where this influence leads in her career. And it's interesting because obviously her mother's views, as well as the fact that she had all these kinds of influences, not just from her mother, but also from kind of the world in which her parents Mm. moved and the friends that they had and the society that they kept. She grew into quite the precocious little child, (laughs) as you could possibly imagine. And there are a few little kind of early quotes about her from some of the family's broader sorts of friends. And apparently at the age of 13, she told Henry Holiday, who was a family friend and quite a celebrated genre and landscape painter, who was kind of on the outskirts of the pre-Raphaelite movement, but she told him that all artists were fools, <laughs> which he <laughs> took quite... At 13. At 13. That's such a precocious thing to say. It is. And he took quite a lot of offence to that. Oh, from a 13-year-old girl. I'm glad that he was, you know, in a way... Hey, him being offended means he kind of took her serious. Like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. respected her views. That's actually kind of cool that he was offended by a thirteen-year-old yeah. girl saying he was that cut. all artists are fools. Like, it's like, like harsh, it. yeah, harsh burn, <laughs> harsh burn, Mary. Thanks, but it's also kind of ironic considering that she became essentially as a writer, she became an artist herself yeah. as well. But yeah. it was also noted by Agnes Pointer, who was also in that circle of artists and friends, and she was a celebrated pianist, and she was also mm. married to a painter to Edward Pointer, the painter. She was also the aunt of Rudyard Kipling. So fucking <laughs> how is this, this whole society, this whole world of people is just, ugh. Anyway. It's because they were the upper classes. They had nothing better to do with their time than hold salons and yeah, and hang out. things. Yeah. Everybody else was busy working in laundries and shit. Correct. So, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's so true. <laughs> but Agnes Pointer said of her that Mary chatted awfully and she is only just 15. I believe a judicious course of snubbing would do her good. <laughs> What a punishment. We shall snub her and that will teach this precocious 15-year-old a lesson. That'll put her in her place. Me, an adult woman, I shall snub this teenage girl. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That actually probably would work. But it tells us. On a precocious 15-year-old. Well, I don't know if it would have worked on Mary de Morgan. (laughs) Because, I mean, I think this tells us a lot about her, right? Like from the very Mm. beginning, her mother has clearly taught her to take no shit. Yes. And she is. Speak her mind willing to speak her mind and she doesn't care what she says to grown men and women. She'll Mm. just say what she thinks. And so I think this is, you know, sort of a fabulous way of thinking about the woman that she's going to become as well and how this is going to influence her. So just going back to her and her mother, it's not entirely known whether or not Mary shared her mother's spiritualist Mm. beliefs. So this is an interesting one, obviously, because, you know, she goes on to write these magical stories that, you know, are in this world of magic and supernatural and do kind of draw on that kind of background. But there's no real kind of evidence to suggest that she subscribed to those spiritualist Mm -hmm. beliefs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she herself claimed later that all of the seances she ever attended were fakes. But what's interesting is that at the same time, apparently there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that she had some talents when it came to fortune telling 
and did Tana she indeed? And well, yeah. I wonder how much of this is like. Do you know when she kind of came out and said? Was this much later in life that she said that every seance she'd been to was fake? Yes, and it was yeah. when she was quite young that her yep. mother, obviously, like Sophia, her mother was yeah. employing her in the salons and yeah. the seances that she held. I do think there's a big age thing associated with that. Yeah, and that the older you get, the more you want to distance yourself mm, from it. Perhaps, yeah. And that may be one of the reasons why she said this later on in life. But apparently when she was young, there were quite a few occasions where she accurately predicted particular events. Really? Yeah. And so, for example, there are actually quite a few examples of this. But for one of them was that apparently at one particular salon, she was reading one guest's palm and abruptly cut short the reading and said she didn't want to continue with it. And later explained to her mother, it was that she'd seen in his future that he was going to witness the drowning of his fiance. And then he himself would drown at the same spot. And that is exactly what happened a year later. precisely what happened to this particular individual and she hadn't told anybody else but her mother this yep and it still came to pass so there are a few other kind of uncanny sorts of Mm. stories in this vein where she predicted certain things or saw certain things in people's futures but then yes later on she kind of claimed that no no I was making it all up for my mother's Mm. benefit Mm. you know it was just to help my mum out when she did these but it's kind of it's a hard one to kind of it's a really funny one it's a really funny one that I could probably unpack in depth (laughs) for a long time I shan't but I do think that there's a lot there about like you said, maybe distancing herself. And also remember as she's older, I don't know how aware she would have been of some of these things, but there's the rise of a lot of psychological theories, you know, the rise of psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. psychoanalysis and the idea of the imagination and, you know, all of this kind of subconscious desires and and manifestations of the mind. And Mm -hmm. and I wonder Mm -hmm. how much of an influence those kinds of ideas, you know, like that whole like, did that happen or did I just yeah, do this exactly. for my mother? Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of potential stuff going on there. And to add to that as well, to make it even more sort of complex, well, I should note as well that Sophia actually did publish a book on spiritualism called From Matter to Spirit, The Result of 10 Years' Experience in Spirit Manifestations Intended as a Guide to Inquirers. Really? Yeah, which she published in 18- Sophia published that. Yeah, so the mother, yeah, so Mary de Morgan's mother, Sophia de Morgan, published that. And she published it in 1862. So she published that when Mary was still a child, essentially, or a teenager. And she does actually refer to it. In this book, she actually does refer a couple of times to Mary's kind of budding talents and there are so as I said there was that one example but a few other examples that she refers to but also so this is another one and I'm sure you'll find this interesting because I think (laughs) this plays into it as well as I mentioned the family had seven children but of course Mm. as often happens died a few died yep so apparently Elizabeth Alice who was an older sister she died at just 15 years old, and Sophia records that Mary was having dreams and sort of visions Mm. of her sister from about the age of six. She started dreaming about her dead sister, and these dreams usually involve them playing together in what Mary described as a jeweled garden, and often she'd see her sister sort of haloed in a gold light, 
And they were very comforting, very kind of moving dreams that she Mm. would tell her mother. And so Sophia was basically convinced that Mary was acting as like a spirit guide for her dead daughter, Elizabeth. And this, of course, you know, fed even more into her obsession with spiritualism and with the afterlife. But then I guess, again, Mary distanced herself from this again later in life. And as you say, it's hard to know if it's because she ended up not taking it too seriously and she was like, oh, look, I was just playing into my mother's fantasies Mm. or whatever. Mm. Or if there's something more to that, you know, if it is because it was an uncomfortable space for her to Mm -hmm. recall or an uncomfortable thing for her to want to remember or, yeah, it's a really, really interesting Yeah, there's so much in that. And also I wonder, and again, I don't know much about her biography and so like I'm just totally reading any possible answer into this Mm, but mm. there's also things of wanting to be taken seriously as an artist Mm, as a writer mm -hmm. as somebody who's contributing culturally and intellectually and sometimes you know there were a lot of writers who totally embraced spiritualism you know like Arthur Conan Doyle which seems bizarre and (laughs) Elizabeth Barrett Browning but for Mm, others mm. it was a real kind of thing to push against it was a kind of a stigma you you don't want to be kind of associated with that because it's airy fairy and it's unknown yeah. and it's I won't say it's anti-scientific because actually this the spiritualists applied as much of a scientific method as kind of existed in the late Victorian period <laughs> to what they did but I think there's a huge number of reasons for wanting to do that and also there's so many elements of self-doubt that come into that as well mm-hmm. like you mm-hmm. start to think was I just imagining all of that because you know because I was a six-year-old child oh yeah because I was a child and because my mother was already deeply into spiritualism and she took me to seances exactly yeah and and your mother is feeding you this stuff about your dead sister yeah feeding you stuff about the afterlife not feeding on purpose but it's all it was around her it was all around her absolutely Yeah. Yeah. yeah and this is the world in which she grows up and yeah, I think her mother is a really, really fascinating oh, influence and I figure in her life. I love her mother. Yeah, and I love she, her mother. she is such an interesting woman, as I said, in her own right and her writing that she, you know, she did publish quite a lot of articles on these kind of ideas and she was a really, really strong personality and you could mm. imagine the influence that she would have on the young Mary. So this is the world that she grows up in. Yeah, really very influential. Yeah, and so whether or not, you know, we don't actually know too, too much specifically about, as I said, about her education or whatever, but we can make some pretty good guesses, Mm. whether that was formal or informal through her mother and father, but these were the influences around her in her young life. And by her late teens, her family had gone through some pretty hefty hardships because not only had she lost her older sister, Elizabeth Alice, as I said, but she also went on to lose two more of her siblings Mm. And her father as well passed away. And so she and her mother ended up having to move in and live with William de Morgan, the the old brother I mentioned earlier. And look, to be honest, at that time, he was only really himself living in some pretty standard artist's lodgings, Uh Um, uh (laughs) which I think we can all imagine. One bedroom loft above a (sighs) cobbler's. Yeah, that sort of thing. Tile rises at you amongst yeah. the horse shit on the pavement. Yeah, and there's just like easels strewn about. Yeah, 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 shit like that. Dusty windows that have been cleaned in ales. Yeah, yeah, because artists don't have time for that shit, man. And they can't afford a maid. 
<laughs> That's true. So they end up having to move in with him and live together because, as I said, yeah, they've been hit pretty hard by a few different tragedies. But it's also probably this exposure to sort of the artist's life that inspired Mary de Morgan to start her own writing. Because it is here while living with her brother that she begins to write stories in earnest. And now she kind of begins and as I said she's moving now or her mother still and her brother her family are still moving in these circles and so she begins to share her fairy tales around as oral stories in that sort of great old tradition Mm. because of her brother's friends and her mother's friends who moved in the circles with the Morrises and the Byrne Joneses who were another pre-Raphaelite family she apparently would sit about telling their children stories and their children would sort of beg to hear more of her stories Mm. and so she'd just have to come up with more so she'd spend all this time inventing new stories to tell the children she's like Shahrazade, but without the, the threats of death exactly yes which is a good thing to be <laughs> and of course the children that she told these stories to included Rudyard Kipling as I mentioned uh-huh. before so I'm sure she had some influence on him as a storyteller too the young Rudyard yes. Kipling sitting around at her feet listening to her invent all of these stories now her first published work didn't come out until she was 23 years old. Gosh, what a late bloomer. I know. I say that like she's a late bloomer, <laughs> which she's clearly not. 23 years old is very, very young. But it is it is surprising when we think about the fact that she's already been telling them and already been making yeah. them up for this period yeah. of time. And also when we think about the fact that she's already moving in this circle of very yeah. literate people. Who know a lot of people who could have probably helped get her published earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So very modest 1873, her first (laughs) collection comes out and it was a co-authored work actually and it wasn't fairy tales yet, amazingly. Mm. It was a co-authored work with a friend of hers called Edith Helen Nixon and it was called Six by Two Stories of Old Schoolfellows, which is interesting because they were short stories about schooling even though there's no proof. (laughs) That she went to school. That she went to school. (laughs) And there's no proof that it's autobiographical, so we still can't make any assumptions about her education. So, (laughs) eh. But it was the stories of fairies and princesses that she told to the children around her that really garnered the most interest. Mm. And as I said, that sort of beg her for more. So eventually she began to write down some of these fairy stories instead. And she published her first collection of fairy stories only a few sort of years later when she was 27 in 1877. So her first collection of fairy tales is called On a Pincushion mm-hmm. and her brother William illustrated it. So it's very nice. handy to know. Yeah, it's good to know illustrators yeah. if you're going to be publishing that sort of stuff. And the illustrations that accompany it are gorgeous yeah that's not surprising Ah, now I want to look it up yes if you ever happen to find a first edition of that you're in a lot of fucking luck and also I'll probably not that I've decided on it yet but I'll probably have to use one of those illustrations for this episode because bizarrely despite coming from the background she did and despite moving in the circle she did there are no Mm. real verified photographs of Mary de Morgan Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. By this point in history. Photography existed. Yeah, exactly. And and definitely people of a certain means could. Yeah. And there are photos of some of her other siblings. There's even photos of Elizabeth Alice, the other daughter I mentioned who died. Sometimes photos of Evelyn de Morgan, her sister-in-law, get sort of mistakenly credited as 
Mary de Morgan. There's one photo of a young girl that is thought to be her, but even yep. that's not 100% sure. So it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's this strange mystery that there's no verifiable sort of photographs in existence mm. of Mary de Morgan, even though we have photos and paintings of William de Morgan, Sophia de Morgan, <laughs> all of these other people who moved in her circles. Could they have perhaps yeah. just got lost maybe? Oh, yeah, very, very like possibly. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of adds to the mystery of her, yeah. I think. yeah that there's this weird kind of glitch in history where we <laughs> don't quite know. We just lost her. She's we kind gone. of lost her, yeah. So I'll just use, I think I'll probably go ahead and use one of mm. William de Morgan's illustrations instead because mm-hmm. they're really quite beautiful. But anyway, getting back to this collection of fairy tales on a pincushion, <laughs> a lovely title and the premise of the collection, which was published in three volumes, is basically that there's a brooch, a shawl pin and a common pin all hanging out on a pin cushion together. <laughs> okay. That's essentially it. And they're complaining about how they never get used very much anymore these days and that they're sick of hearing all the fancy bracelets nearby going on about all the shit that they get to do because they're fancy bracelets. <laughs> and it's really giving them the shit. So they decide to start telling each other stories to while away the time. So this is kind of the framing device. Right. Of right. how she imparts her fairy tales. Yeah, it's really, it's actually really quite sweet. So every fairy story sort of starts and ends with a different one of these inanimate objects kind of thinking about the story that they're going to tell and how huh. they're going to tell the story. That's and super cute. Yeah, it's super duper cute. It's really, really lovely. So then when we start to unpick the fairy stories that she actually tells in this collection, we start to see where a lot of her influences come through in the stories Mm. that she's telling because she does use those very standard traditional tropes. You know, she's got fairies, obviously. Mm -hmm. She's got magic. She's got princes and princesses. She's got peasants. She's got beautiful young women. She's got handsome young princes. Like she uses all of these standard tropes. tropes. But she really finds these ways to subvert them, you know, and she really does write Stories that are are now, like we tend to do, being unpicked through a much more sort of feminist lens. Right. And she's doing this in the Victorian times. Yeah. When gender tropes were very embedded in everything. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think this plays into her real world as well and into her real life. As we'll see a little bit when we talk a bit about her involvement, I think, with the arts and craft movement and with the Morrises and the pre-Raphaelite circle, that she did kind of use her stories to kind of rebel against a little bit of these sort of feminine tropes that were really being applied to her despite these sort of idealistic ideas that these particular groups had. But pretty much one of the first stories or the first story in this particular collection is about a beautiful young woman. Oh, yeah. La, la, la. Lovely, beautiful, long, long hair. She's a gorgeous thing called Lamorna. And she is obsessed with her own beauty. And when she was a I know. So when she was a child, she was in love with a young fisherman called Eric. Oh. And Eric, you know, he still loves her, but she feels now that she's probably a little bit too good for Eric. <gasps> she's too beautiful for the lowly fisherman. Correct, yeah. And she thinks maybe she should aim a little bit higher than Eric. Oh, well. And this offends the water sprites because the water sprites love Eric the fisherman because Eric the fisherman and 
I love this detail. She's got so many great details in her stories that really tell us something. <laughs> the water sprites love Eric the fisherman because he's a super kind fisherman Aww. because whenever he catches the fish, he never tortures them. He always kills them very quickly and kindly. <laughs> so, what a good man. <laughs> what a good man. And so this is kind of a nod to Mary's, you know, anti-animal mm. cruelty beliefs mm. already here that, you know, that this is a good thing in a man. If, you know, he has to hunt, he has to fish. That's part of his job. <laughs> but he does it. He does it in the kindest way he can. Yes. So yeah. So the water sprites are a little bit offended by Lamorna's rejection of Eric. So they decide they're going to steal her reflection. So oh. I know. Tricky, tricky, dicky. Anti-narcissist stuff happening here. Exactly. So when they steal her reflection, she is a little bit fucked. She's got <laughs> no idea what to do with herself. She panics. Oh. She's freaked out. But she goes to see if she can find Eric to help her. But Eric's headed off to be a soldier because he's like, well, fuck you. If you don't love me, I'm going to go join the army and off I go. And she's like, oh, shit. All right. So she wanders around pretty confused and lost. She can't get a good look at herself. She doesn't know if she's looking good or not. She's stressing about it. People in the village start telling her that she's losing too much weight, you know, because she's starting to look a little bit tatty and she's like, oh, shit. I know. But how can I ever really know? Because I can't see myself. I can't see myself. And then there's a fair coming up and she's like, oh, oh, look, I'm going to try and make myself look as beautiful as I can for the fair. So she's going to put on her best dress, even though she can't see. Yeah, she's like, oh put this on anyway and she's like oh you know what I could make it look nicer if I put some feathers in it I Uh need to get some feathers so she goes out always go a treat they do but dress but Lauren (laughs) it's mean to birds (gasps) obviously so she goes sprites yeah well no not really but she does go out into the forest to basically to catch a bird so she can pluck its feathers oh no that's not how you do it and instead she falls on her face and on some rocks and gets a big gash across oh, her cheek. Oh, no. And I think Mary de Morgan's message here is that's what you get for trying to pluck a bird of its feathers. Yeah. So, again, animal cruelty is Is that not... the message? Yeah, okay. That's not enti- animal cruelty rather than the narcissism. <laughs> no, that's not the entire message of the story. It's just, <laughs> it's just another one of her little details that she throws in there. But anyway, so now her face is gashed. She knows her beauty is ruined forever. That's it. Even if she can't see herself, well, that's it. I've got a gash on my face, so it's all over. But Eric comes back from the war. And he's a hero now. He's lost an arm and she's got a scarred face. And she's finally learned her lesson about vanity and realises that she loves Eric and she's not all that anyway. And then they live happily ever after together. Yay. So, yay. See, I see how this story <laughs> subverts some tropes, but I don't know that I'm necessarily on board with all of those subversions. No, know? well, this is the thing is that, yeah, she does subvert some tropes, but they're not always like good, in a good, in a, in a good way. way. <laughs> yeah, they're not always in an empowering way. No. Why no. can't she just be into herself? Why can't she realize that? She can do better than the nice guy fisherman. <laughs> you She's know, too women, into herself. women settle because men are nice to them all the time. And actually, yeah. maybe they could get a better nice guy. Yeah, yeah. It's so <laughs> Apple. Okay, I should phrase that a little bit differently. What I mean is, is that, of course, you know, women settle for men who are just barely, you know, <laughs> they don't have to try very hard and 
so long as they're not physically abusive, they're that'll, good, worthy of marrying. Do. I feel like that's just a very low bar. Like, oh, he doesn't torture animals, thus I shouldn't set my sights higher. You know what I mean? That's a very low bar. And I think that women are told this all the time, that, you know, he's good enough, so great. But actually That's, maybe she's worth more than that. That's all so I'm maybe, saying. maybe the water sprites were wrong. Well, yes. Yeah. I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying. She should aim higher. Yeah. She wanted Love to. herself enough to aim higher. She know? wanted to, but the water sprites fucked they that up They cut her down. Her. They cut no. her down. I just like, yeah, um, you know what I mean. Anyway, well, I do. that's my take on that story. But this is the thing about any fairy tale, right, or about any of these stories in a fairy tale tradition is that you can reinterpret them in yes. so many very, of very course. different ways. Absolutely. But this is also the fun thing about Mary de Morgan's stories is that you can mm. interpret them in, in a lot of different ways. And a lot of her stories can be interpreted as subverting the normal kind of fairy tale trope to have sort of more feminist or humanist ideals. Mm. But many of them don't have happy endings either. Oh, really? Yeah, and lots of them end with lost lovers sort of finally oh. finding each other and only to fucking die. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, like in uh, one of her stories, The Wandering of Arismon, which appeared in her next collection of fairy tales, which was published in 1880. And this collection is called The Necklace of Princess Fioremonde, and it was published in 1880. And this time around the collection was illustrated by Walter Crane, who was one of the most sort of prolific children's book illustrators mm. of his day and his pictures, again, are just stunning. But I love all children's book illustrators that's from this period of history. It's, I'm a bit biased. It's really <laughs> it's very much my thing. But the title story for this collection is another interesting one because, again, it subverts some things but it subverts some things in a, in a way that, yeah, don't quite stack up with me either. Okay. Okay. Because it's about a princess who doesn't want to get married to anyone. Great. Right, that's it. She's on board so far. Yeah, on board. She's rebelling against marriage. Yeah. And so her friend, who's the local wicked witch. Oh, I'm <laughs> even more yeah. on board. Excellent. Yep. She gives her a magical necklace. And whenever one of her suitors comes along, she is like, oh, do you like my necklace? Isn't it pretty? Would you like to touch it? And as soon as they close their fingers around the necklace, they instantly disappear and become a jewel on the chain. Of oh, whoa. I love it and hate it. Seemed, I don't know if I admire it or, I mean, obviously it's awful, but also it's great. Yeah. So she <laughs> kind of, she starts collecting all these princes who come for her as oh my beautiful God. beads on her chain. Oh my God. Now, the thing is, is that, the whole time in this story, we're constantly being reminded how wicked and evil she is for okay. doing this. Okay. And she eventually gets punished for this because she's the bad guy of the story. Oh, but you're not supposed the, to be on her side, okay? Yeah, <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to be on her side. But at the same Damn. time, like, I really like the inventiveness of how she is in it to avoid unwanted marriage, yes. right? So, like, so <laughs> yes. it's kind of like it's this twofold sort of hey. thing. And let's be honest, men take women as their wives to just be their trophy all the time. So That's why can't exactly she take a bunch of it. boys to be her trophies on her neck? But yeah, so in a way it is sort of like her subverting that yes. completely. But Except also, that she's telling us that she's the bad guy. Yeah, and I wonder, like this is the, the thing, is sometimes I wonder how much of it she frames in certain ways because – she has to frame it in certain ways mm. because of sort of societal yeah. norms or expectations of the story she's telling. 
And how much of it is just her just like fucking playing with this shit? Yeah, like just really playing it up. Like, oh yeah, you imagine her sitting there writing it, just being like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And then they get turned into jewels, and yeah. she wears around her neck. <laughs> and of course, oh, but, but she's a bad guy. Yeah, but of course she herself never married and mm. she, I mean, it's hard to know, but there's no sort of evidence of any sort of romantic mm-hmm. dalliances that she ever had. So we can kind of assume that she herself was not really into the idea of marriage. Yeah. So how much of this bad guy of this princess and, is actually really a oh, bad yeah. guy? And I wonder how much of that is also that she just knows what she has to write in order to for it to be published. Precisely. You know? That's exactly like, it. You probably can't get away with having that type of princess as the person you want to root for in the story yeah. in the Victorian times. Yeah. So you've got a painter as the bad mm. guy. But she really does sort of push against societal norms and expectations yep. in her stories. And she does push the boundaries and push the envelope quite a bit. And I think it's really fun. So Yeah. It sounds great. It is. And one of the other things that she's also sort of very concerned about in her work as well, sort of alongside female agency, because there's so many stories where it's, I mean, she does have stories where princes go out in the world and do things or Mm. men wander out, but she's also got lots of stories where it's women who have the Mm -hmm. agency and it's women who go out to save their men and it's women who. And not just getting lost or kidnapped or lost in the Yeah. Yeah. And so she is concerned with female agency. She's concerned alongside, as I said, animal welfare plays into her stories, which is great, which is good, (laughs) but also pushing it back against industrialization as well Mm. is something else that she's really kind of interested in because of course as I've mentioned she was close to the Morrises her brother was part of that arts and craft movement the pre-Raphaelites themselves were all about going back to old techniques and Mm -hmm. arts rather than sort of mass-produced products that were beginning to become the norm towards the end of the 19th century and you know William Morris believed in the old ways of making textiles and pottery as did De Morgan's brother and so her stories do have this kind of anti-capitalist anti-industrialist mm-hmm. kind of bent and in a lot of them it's following modern ways is kind of the downfall of yeah. these particular societies or these particular people you know moving away from tradition and traditional farming practices or t- traditional living practices mm-hmm. is actually kind of their downfall So this is an interesting one because I think as I mentioned in our episode on Lizzie Siddle, who was a pre-Raphaelite artist, and we did her, I don't know, maybe season two or something? Oh, three, I think. Three, yeah. So as I I mentioned in that episode about her, the pre-Raphaelites had this very sort of idealised idea of nature and this kind of abstract, idealist kind of mentality. That was also part of the arts and craft movement as well, to which many of these artists belonged, that they were kind of aspiring to this return, kind of quote-unquote return to this mm-hmm. way of living among the forest and the animals yep. that, you know, that they sort of saw as this part of this medieval and ancient English kind of yeah. tradition, even if some of that never actually had existed. No, um, because it's the – it's look, let's be honest. It's the kind of idealised nature that you have either as a child mm. or as someone who's lived their entire life in privilege and doesn't know how much work it is to live in nature. Precisely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is why they put so much stock into handcrafted objects, yeah. making things yeah. in those old traditional ways rather than mass-producing them in new industrialised ways. But, of course, you know <laughs> – 
they were the people who could afford to surround themselves with beautifully crafted bespoke fucking items, whereas most people couldn't afford to buy that, So, which is exactly why. the Industrial Revolution lifted millions of people out of poverty and created the middle class, but that's beside the point. Yeah. So no amount of idealism (laughs) is going to stop the march of progress. I'm sorry, (laughs) pre-Raphaelites. But it also led, of course, to devastating environmental impacts, which, of course, we do not condone. No, and this is kind of part of that catch-22 of this whole mm-hmm. sort of idea, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of with the arts and craft movement and with the pre-Raphaelites, it also sort of led to this very early version of environmentalism really yeah. that, you know, really did recognise the mess and pollution yes. of these mechanised and industrialised machines and the negative impact that they had on how people lived, and their idea did genuinely extend to the treatment of the environment. It did extend to the treatment of animals as commodities. Like it really was a very early kind of approach to environmentalism Mm. in a lot of ways. Mm. But with that said, this idealised idea of nature that was driven in these movements very much by the men who were at the helm of these movements still continued to reinforce these ideas of that binary of women and nature being one thing. So even though they wanted women to be a part of the movement, there were still very clearly defined roles that women had in that movement because they were the natural female roles. Mm, Which lends you to nurturing and being the source of creative inspiration. Like women and like nature are both the sources of creative inspiration Mm -hmm. but they are not the creators. That's right, yeah. And that's why most of the women who moved in these circles when we hear about the ways that they functioned as artists, a lot of them were embroiderers mm-hmm. because this was seen as it's one's work. Particularly, yeah, one particularly feminine style of art and craft that women could do. And, of course, there were plenty of painters, but this was still very much the men really still dominated this space. Yeah. But women could do this other kind of work, right? Yeah. And so, of course, as I said, de Morgan herself, she was part of this group. She was part of this. She moved in this circle, but she was also very much part of the suffrage movement. And she believed in women's work as being seen as equal. Mm. And she would have seen all around her women being used in this idealized space in women's work that was not valued really in the same regard as men's work no matter how much of these men Mm. might have claimed that it was so she would have seen this kind of irony I think in the idealism of the old ways yeah and this was not what she was after this was not what she valued you know she and this plays into her stories as well because Female characters are often sort of locked into female roles in her stories and when they are, it's usually disastrous Mm. and it usually doesn't work out. And so instead of women and nature being these inseparable things in her stories in the very way that the pre-Raphaelites portrayed women, usually or quite often there are odds with each other. Yeah, right. So women at odds with nature. Yeah, exactly. And quite often... Women get locked into roles where they become sort of subservient to nature or they have this kind of relationship where, I mean, she's got one particular story where essentially this queen is sort of damned to garden for the rest of her life. And it kind of becomes... (laughs) 
suppose not. But it becomes this kind of unnatural space for her to be in. So she kind of, she straddles these lines between, it's a difficult one to unpick. She straddles these lines between kind of tapping into what she knows is the accepted view or what people want to read, what Mm -hmm. people want to hear. But then also finding these ways of kind of just slipping in these nods to the fact that, no, this is actually not how this story should be or Mm. this is not the position that these characters should be in. There are scholars out there now. I mean, her work has really come back to the fore in much more recent years because, of course, you know, she just disappeared off the Mm. radar as tends to happen. But I think now there's been a lot more kind of research and analysis of her stories that are really pulling apart these much more detailed nuances to her stories. Yeah. And it would take me, I think, a whole another PhD thesis <laughs> yeah, to untangle to it all. Because yeah. even, I mean, that issue of nature is such a tricky one, an interesting one as well, isn't it? And one that I feel an inclination towards and a push against in that way that I think it seems like perhaps she's also playing into, you know, it's like, no, I don't actually want this. Women aren't just nature. They're not just nurturers. Mm. They're not just, you know, the creative force of the planet. But at the same time, there's also this kind of idea of the male dominion over nature. There's a kind of a masculine pursuit to conquer Mm. nature. Mm -hmm. We see this in all kinds of texts and throughout history and, you know, the Industrial Revolution kind of speaks to this as well. And that has been traditionally seen as a very kind of masculine force to want to separate men not separate man from nature, but to claim dominion over nature, to control nature, to pave it over and to build skyscrapers and progress. Yeah, and to associate them with culture as opposed to nature. Yes. And so it's sort of like in a way you kind of also don't want to be leaning too hard into that because that does play up a lot of that, you know, like I said when I critiqued the pre-Raphaelites naive kind of idea about Mm. Mm. nature, yes, the Industrial Revolution did lead to, of course, the economic freedoms for a lot more people. But, of course, it had huge, 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 huge environmental impacts Mm. that Mm. we are living in the very dire consequences of right now. Mm -hmm. But it's not as simple as either or. (laughs) No. And it seems like it obviously isn't as simple as either or for her either. These Mm. things are much more deeply complicated than an idealist version of nature or a feminine idea of nature versus a a masculine idea of industry. I guess it's all about the – let's come back to the idea of the destruction of binaries. Let's tear them all down. Exactly. You know, anyway. But it is true though because I think that this is exactly it, right? Like the world that she functioned in, it is a difficult and complex and problematic one and so the readings of her stories can be difficult and Mm. complex and problematic Mm. because, I mean, she herself, you know, how would she align herself? We don't even know. And, of course, this is reading, you know, not at all having the death of the author involved in the story. This is very much putting her. Reading the author's work. Exactly. Which is, you know, a very different way to read stories and a very loaded way to Mm. read these stories. But I do think that it's worth kind of, considering all of these personal influences and how they did feed into these stories, no matter how these stories were presented or how they ended or how varied and different they might be. 
And I do think that it makes them more complex than just black or white, good or bad, Mm. you know, kind of feminist or anti-feminist or whatever they might be. They're much broader than that and they're much more complex than that. Especially for fairy tales because fairy tales very much want to belong in binaries. Yeah, precisely. According to binary structures, you know. But hers aren't. This is exactly what I'm saying. Like hers definitively don't do that because you can't figure it out. That. Yes. I think this is the really fascinating thing I find about her work. And she did sort of, as I said, you know, she did participate in these movements. She participated in the art and craft movement as an embroiderer Mm. because this was, you know, one of the jobs she was allowed to do. And also probably because she really fucking enjoyed it too. You know, there's nothing wrong with embroidery. (laughs) And she would have apparently um, worked as well on the Kelmscott Manor bed hangings, which if you look them up Mm. are these like sumptuous fucking embroidered tapestries and draperies that were made for William Morris. Right. And that De Morgan would have worked on alongside with Jane Morris and Mae Morris, who was one of their daughters, and another embroiderer as well called Lily Yates, who was the sister to... William Butler Yeats, of course. Uh It's all intertwined. Fucking they're all hanging out together. (laughs) And as I mentioned, this was that appropriate women's work. So even in this sort of utopian space that De Morgan's still being pushed into this female box, Mm. hence Mm. why her stories continue to have this sort of rebellious kind of bent to them, I think. And she went on to publish her final collection of fairy stories in 1900 and that collection was called The Wind Fairies. And this one was illustrated by Olive Cockerell, who I actually don't think illustrated all of that much stuff. I can't find too much. But this was it for her sort of fairy tales. But she did continue to write short stories, which were published in English and American magazines. She published a two-volume novel called A Mm. Choice of Chance. A Choice of Chance. A Choice of Chance. But she published it under the pseudonym of William Dodson. Oh, interesting. Which is interesting that she published it under a male pseudonym. And then she never wrote another one because it had fairly poor reviews. Oh, bless. But she also edited her mother's sort of memoirs as well. Uh, She wrote articles as a journalist on all sorts of social issues that were part of her stories. So she she wrote articles on education, on women's education, on suffrage, on unionism, on socialism. And this was how she supported herself her entire life because, as, as I said, she never married. Yeah. She didn't have any really particularly rich male members of her family to keep her. I mean, William, her brother William had his own family Mm. and when he married Evelyn, Mary had to move out essentially, Mm -hmm. you know. And so she kept herself going on her writing but it was a poultry living at best, Mm -hmm. as it is now. (laughs) Nothing's changed. And she had to sort of supplement it with working as a typist as well, which is kind of interesting because – that's using a modern technology, essentially, yeah. even though she's part of this kind of pushback against <laughs> modern technology. Uh, yes, but she has to earn money. You see, you can push back against That's modern right. technology in an artistic sense as soon as economics come into it. You don't have that luxury anymore. Uh, <laughs> like, still going to make the cash. This is exactly what mm-hmm. I mean by that kind of privilege of that idea yeah. of returning to nature. It, it, it's all very well and good 
for artists who come from the middle Old and upper money. classes. Mm-hmm. But it's a very different thing for people who have to actually pay for their lives. Yeah. <laughs> as destructive as many modern technologies are. Yeah, and this is essentially what she, she had to do that. She had yeah. to find a way to make ends meet. But she also seemed to be rather content with it because she once told her sister-in-law, Evelyn, that she was happy to have a small income because – Quote, it is so delightful planning things and deciding what one can afford. It would bore me to death to be rich. Oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I like having no money because then it means I have to think harder about what I do with it. Like, yeah, and, and she probably appreciated what she had more, you know. That's right. Or maybe she was just telling Evelyn that because she was just trying to make right, it, yeah, yeah, make herself a better. <laughs> Probably took great pleasure in small treats. Yeah. But, of course, there's another irony here as well because – William, fucking William, brother William, himself eventually began writing and publishing stories and he made a buttload more cash writing stories than Mary ever did. Seriously. William. So pissed off. You'd be like, William, just fucking stick with your tiling and your pottery man and don't (laughs) come trampling on my turf of story writing. But. Unfortunately, he did, and unfortunately, he was more successful than her financially anyway. Gosh. Yeah, I know. But are we still talking about his stories today? No. We, I don't know. No, we're not really <laughs> – we're not talking about hers either, to the truth. Well, we are. Well, we are. And, and yeah, they have come back to, I think, definitely in an academic sense, mm. you know, they are the kind of stories that have come back around and are getting much more attention in terms of, you know, thinking about them in the context of – her biographical life, but also just as pure whimsical fairy stories as well. Yeah. And they are entertaining whimsical fairy stories. Cool. But it seems that she moved away from writing in the early 1900s. And I don't know if maybe this was because she felt perhaps a little bit jaded by William's success. I mean, she... Yeah, you, you kind of would be. I yeah. would be. If my brother who's an architect so you know kind of also involved in design mm, i guess mm. but a more hands-on yeah masculine form of design if he suddenly decided you know what i'm gonna take up this story writing business mm-hmm. and then like published a novel i'd be like fuck, you. fuck yourself james yeah seriously get I fucked agree. yeah and i hope james is listening <laughs> and i hope he knows never to fucking try and write a story <laughs> ever don't do it james don't do it <laughs> but Yeah, I think maybe she was a bit disillusioned by, you know, William's success. And she did have success. She Mm. did. Like her books did sell and she was known in her time for her stories. But she never made as much money and she Mm. never had as much clout as her male counterparts, which frankly is, you know, pretty fucking unfair but also just the way it was you know like they simply it it actually just is it is and they simply had more clout because they were male yeah and so I do think that this would have been a huge factor in the fact that she turned away from writing and she started to sort of dedicate more and more of her time to sort of her socialist pursuits and she visited she spent a lot of time visiting with poor families in the east end of London Mm. running different social welfare clubs and schemes as well as becoming much more involved in the women's suffrage movement as well and she sort of did know the Pankhurst family too so of course she did Of course she did. (laughs) But it was not sort of long into early 1900s and her move away from writing that she also decided to leave England altogether. Really? Yeah. And this becomes a very kind of shrouded part of her life, the end of her life. We kind of lose track of her and we don't really know 
why or how or what quite sparked her to do it. But she moved to Egypt where she took up a position as a director of a girls' reformatory school. Interesting choice. So very huge divergence from what she was doing previously. And not much is known about her time there. And she sort of faded into obscurity once she left England. And she didn't even live that much longer after moving to Egypt because she ended up dying of tuberculosis in (gasps) in 1907. Oh, no. Yeah, so she was only 57 when she passed away. And, yeah, those final years of her life are kind of just a bit of a, Mm. yeah, a bit of a mystery. But as I said, you know, there's been a revival of her stories in much more recent years and fairy tale studies have moved a focus back onto the role of women's storytellers Mm. in the genre Mm. hugely in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And you can now, you know, you can get your hands on reprints of her work without too much trouble. You can find her stories. You can read most of her stories online, I think, pretty oh, that's good. easily. You can find definitely find copies of On a Pin Cushion online. And so they're out there now. So yep. you can discover her. She is, I think, being resurrected as a real contributor to the fairy tale genre, whereas for a long time she just got swept under the rug and forgotten mm. about. So I think it's worth seeking her out. It's yeah. worth worth reading her stories. It's worth seeing what kind of interpretation you might bring to yes. um, her stories. I mean, I feel like I definitely need to read them now because I've very blindly made a lot of bold interpretations of her work (laughs) without having actually read it. So I think my job now is to actually read the stories and (laughs) see if anything that I said is even remotely relevant. Well, they vary widely though. Like they really do. And And they sound fascinating. Yeah, well, that's the fun of them. That's the fun of the stories as well is the fact that they are so incredibly imaginative and different. I love a wildly imaginative weird morally ambiguous mm, mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. you know like like a an angela carter-esque morally ambiguous fairy tale where we're like uh is there any good guys or bad guys here i don't know yeah or <laughs> is, ev- is everyone guess? just a bad guy or is everyone just somewhere in the middle of the spectrum like yes. can we all we're all good sometimes we're all bad sometimes yeah like yeah i think this is kind of the key takeaway is that you can't box her in in yeah. one way or another and you, you do have to sort of just approach these stories, I think, at face value and kind of see what you take away from them. Mm. But they are a lot of fun regardless of whatever message or idealism she was she may or may not have been imparting into these stories. Let's forget about all that. The death of the author, right? Yeah, they're a hell of a lot of fucking fun and they come with really pretty pictures. So I'm excited to look at the illustrations. (laughs) I want to see the stories and the illustrations together. I'm going to see if I can track down a copy of On a Pin Cushion, see if I can... Find yeah, out there in the uh, internet. Yeah, if you can find, as I said, if you can find any of the original ones, they are so beautiful. But they're also so expensive. You'd mm-hmm. be setting yourself back a lot of money. But you can just <laughs> find like simple reproductions of her stories as well for cheap. I don't know who gets the money for those now. Probably some male heir in the family. Well, they'd be <laughs> they'd be out of copyright now, so they would, it would all belong yeah. to whoever's publishing them. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's been more than seventy five years since the death of the author. Yeah. So why don't you just go out there and give someone some money to read her stories? Good. Great. That's what you should all or do. Look them up on the internet and give nobody any money. That's what the internet's for. 
Yeah. Thank you, Industrial <laughs> Revolution. Out of copyright. Alicia. Thanks, capitalism. We need to protect artists' intellectual property. Copyright has its place. We do. <laughs> anyway, that was fantastic. I actually also really want to go and look up more of her mother, uh, Sophia yes. de Morgan. Is that Sophia right? Sophia de Morgan. She also sounds fascinating. Mm. Thank you for introducing us to these two fabulous women, mostly Mary, obviously. I think we've all got a lot of reading to do now. Yeah, fun reading too. Like yeah. not hard-hitting, difficult reading, just like fun fantasy reading. Good. The best kind of reading. Hooray. Hooray. So do you have any idea where we'll go next time? No, because I'm actually thinking a couple of episodes ahead. So okay. I have like a few episodes ahead planned, but I don't have next week planned. I've got a couple of items on the short list, so I might see – where my preferences take me, but I do have our hole in history underway. And that is a mythological figure. So not fairy tales, but myths. And we're also talking about collecting these myths in the 19th century and publishing them around then. We're going to the northern reaches of Finland in Patreon, if you'd like to join us there for the story of Luhi, Lohi. I hope that's how you say her name. And Evil hag witch of Finnish mythology. Hooray! That's coming up on Patreon real soon. I love a hag witch. Love! Love! (laughs) So, yes, please do join us over at Patreon. You can get that and many other Patreon goodies for as little as $2 a month. month. And if you're in Australia, you can also buy merch from us on Etsy and we will let international listeners know as soon as we can afford to open up the uh, shipping again because it is hideously expensive in these COVID times of ours. It sure is. And, of course, if you can't afford to support us financially, we totally understand. We can barely afford to support ourselves financially as well. (laughs) So you can support us by giving us some love in the form of reviews and ratings we love those and you can follow us on instagram or join a facebook group we are at deviant women i should also mention that while we do have a twitter page both of us have stopped checking it because twitter is bad for our souls and mental health but we (laughs) will check it sporadically but we will not be very quick on the replies over on twitter at the moment no we we need a break yeah instagram (laughs) is a little bit better for mental health yeah yeah a little bit bit better i mean social media in general it's not great for mental health, <laughs> but again, it's a necessary evil in these times of ours, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as always, we'd like to end the show by giving a great big thank you to India Hui for the music, to Brendan Davies for the sound, and to Dan, our executive producer. And we will be back with you in a fortnight. Who knows where in history? Who knows when in <laughs> The shrouds of mythological time. We could be anywhere. We could be. We will be everywhere and anywhere all at once because time is fluid and a human construct. Ah, And we're omniscient and (laughs) omnipresent. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Until then, we will see you now and always. (laughs) Take care of yourselves and don't think of us watching you on the toilet. (laughs) Bye. Bye. What a stupid ending. <laughs>